Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6, and also verses 21 through 25. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Verses 21 through 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This has been the reading of God's word. Well, I keep saying it week in and week out, but I think we need to keep remembering it. The world is in crisis. And as I mentioned in the prayer, I think the, the wrong viewpoint for us to have would be, man, I just can't wait for things to get back to normal. I, I think it's possible that whatever God is doing, and I would not pretend to know what God, is, what God is doing at this moment, but I think it's possible that a lesson that God has for us is, is that the normal was not okay. What you and I accepted to be normal was not okay. Okay, the Christianity that America has experienced for the last number of years, uh, for us labeling that as Christianity is not okay. The life that you and I have been living up till now, I may not, I know a lot of you guys. Uh, some of you guys, I don't know so much about your life, but I know this your life, the way it has been, is not okay. The way my life has been is not okay. As we look around at a world in the middle of crisis, what I see, and I think what we see, is a, a church that seems impotent to actually help in the middle of a crisis. In the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of confusion about what are facts and what are not facts, in the midst of a, a, a nation that's crying out and groaning, as we mentioned last week, under the, the weight of racial injustice and confusion on all sides about what that means and how do we make a path forward, I think that we look around and we see a church that is impotent, unable to help and speak and move into many of those places, not in the way that we should. Uh, part of the problem, I think, is that, is that Christians, as Christians, that uh, our lives don't really look as they should. Our, our lives don't look like they should be looking. We don't have, and I'm, I'm speaking for myself, and a generalization, if you don't fall on this, 
and that is fine. But in gross generalizations, I think that we don't have the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control that is expected of the children of God. Notice, if you're familiar with the Bible, I just noticed, I just read off the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I went there is because those deal with our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes and not just our beliefs. See, we, as Christians, American Christians, we have our beliefs down. We've made very clear to the world around us over the past number of years exactly what we believe and what, how that is different than what they believe. That is not a bad thing. That is a good thing, but it's not enough in and of itself. Does your life reflect those fruits of the Spirit we just read? To be honest, I'm not sure that as Christians we look all that different from the rest of the world. I think if we did, I think if we did look so much different, then, then I think things would be different. As things got darker around us, we would shine brighter. That's what Jesus meant whenever he said that his believers would be like a city on a hill or a lantern set on a table. That as things were dark around, that that light couldn't be hid and that it would be seen by the people around them. That's what we see in the book of Acts, right? What we see is that that Christians, their lives looked markedly different in the world around them, not just in their beliefs, but in their actions and their attitudes, in who they were at a heart level, that that they looked different, so much so that the, the people around them, it said that they were afraid of them, but it also said they held them in awe. People were afraid of them. They knew, I don't agree with you. And yet, at the same time, they were being added to their number daily, those who were being saved. That's the the path that Christians should be on. It should be the type of city that we should be, a city on a hill where people around may not always agree, but they know there's a difference in there. And the difference is the difference between uh, a person who's living a worldly lifestyle and a person who looks and smells like Jesus. You know what I mean by look and smell like Jesus? I don't mean physically. I mean, I mean the, when you read Jesus of the Gospels, you see and you feel and you sense a different type of person. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just believe different things. He doesn't just do different things, but he's a different type of person. He has a, a love and a patience and a gentleness. All those fruits that we were just reading about, he has all that fruit apparent in his life from his very soul. We are made to be brighter and different than the rest of this world system. Our, our lives should bring hope and also conviction to the world around us. Our, our lives should bring hope, but also conviction to the people around us who are walking in darkness. And my question is, does your life look like that? Do our lives look like that? We need to change. I need to change. You need to change. And the good news is we can, but the bad news is that we have to be taken low. We have to have parts of our life actually deconstructed before we can rebuild to actually change as people. 
And that's what this, this chapter, these verses in this chapter are about. This chapter, chapter 7 of Romans, is a famous one. There's a lot going on through this whole chapter. That's why we're not trying to tackle the whole thing at once. I commend to you, study it, look at it. If you want some resources and how to understand it, I'd be glad to point them to you. We can't hope to cover them in a setting like this. But what we're going to try to do this morning is try to get to the heart of this chapter and what Paul is getting to and is exactly what I've been talking about. How do we change as human beings? How do we change as Christians? How do we change as non-Christians? Just to back up and give us a little bigger picture here for a minute. Just we'll run really fast. Paul is laying out in the, in the, the book of Romans how the gospel changes everything. He's telling us how the gospel changes everything and why we need it to change us. And so here's the kind of the background, the bigger picture background. God created man. He created the world good. He created man in his image and he created man good. Male and female, he created them and placed them in the garden. Man there rebelled in the garden. And ever since then, the creation, which man was lord over, has been in a death spiral, slowly going down. It takes a while for things to, un, to unwind. If you've, been in a, if you've been in a Sears recently, I don't know if anybody has, that's part of the problem. If you've been in a Sears recently or in the past number of years, you get a feeling for what that looks and feels like. Sears Roebuck was once the largest retail establishment in America. It was huge. It was Amazon before Amazon was Amazon. In fact, it dealt in a very similar business model to what Amazon does today. It dealt directly to consumers via a catalog and you would get a catalog, make orders, and they would send you stuff, all kinds of stuff, including in, in its heyday, they even sold houses out of the catalog sold everything. A huge, giant company, the world's tallest building at the time in Chicago was built by them and named after them a giant corporation. And yet through time and different reasons, it's kind of continued to death spiral down. It still exists in a very different form. But if you walk in, you get a feel like this is just a shell of what it once was. It's a shell of what it could have been if it had lived up to its expectations, if it lived up to its promise. And that's what the world creation has been like since mankind fell. The whole creation has been in this death spiral ever since then. But in the very, at the very moment that death enters the world, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve and to the world that he's gonna bring salvation to the world. And the way he begins to do it is he picks this man named Abraham and he gives him a promise and he makes him the father of his people, his chosen people, the Jews. And they, you may, may know the story, the Jews grow and they end up going into Egypt and they are put under slavery. And as he rescues them from slavery under Moses, he gets them out into the wilderness, he rescues them from slavery and in the shadow of Mount Sinai, actually on Mount Sinai, he gives them the law which is what he says is, here's my covenant to you, my promise to you. I will be your God and you will be my people. Here's my covenant or my law. If you keep this law, you will live. And if you don't, you will not. And you will be scattered to the ends of the earth and you will be cursed. A curse will fall upon you. And the heart of that covenant was what we know as the 10 commandments. I'm going to run through them really quickly just so that we're all on the same page as to what we're talking about here. They come from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. 
And God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's command number one. Number two, you should not make yourself a carved image or any likeness. In other words, you will not bow, verse five, he says, you will not bow down to them or serve them. So you will serve no other, no other gods. You will not serve any idols, number two. Uh, number three, uh, verse seven, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Basically, you shall not scroll through Instagram. Now, if you read those commandments, those, they seem pretty reasonable, right? If, if we're honest, it's not really a super high bar in terms of reasonable expectations for humans to have as we live with each other. Hey, here's what I'm asking you to do. Don't lie. Don't murder. Don't take somebody else's husband or wife. Right? I mean, it seems to be overall kind of just be like, here's how to have like a, a, a society that doesn't cave in upon itself. It seems like some reasonable expectations, yet Israel, the Jews, had a very tough time keeping the law. It began a cycle of, of they, would, they would be all about the Lord. And maybe this sounds familiar to, to you in like your life cycle. They would be all about the Lord and then they would fall away from him and they would run their own way and then there would be judgment and then they would repent and then they would be restored and then all would happen all over again, including... Remember what the covenant was? I'll be your God. You be, you be my people. Keep this covenant and it shall go well with you. If you don't, you'll be cursed and scattered. And that's exactly what happened. They were sold, and, sold again or conquered, taken back as conquered slaves. And Israel, by the time Jesus rolls around, they've come back to the land, but it's only a shell of its former self. And yet, the Jews are incredibly proud and rightfully so of their heritage. They were incredibly proud of the fact that God had given them his law. They were the people God gave the law to. They were God's chosen people. And they were so proudful of that, that the religious and civic leaders of that, of that day, of Jesus' day, they actually rejected Jesus. They rejected the son of God, the author of the law himself. He had shown up to give them the promised salvation all the way back to the garden. Remember that? But yet they had gotten so wrapped up in their own pride about the, their law that they used the law against Jesus who showed up and they actually end up killing the son of God. They used the law to rebel against the one that gave them the law. And that's the problem that Paul is getting at. We don't need something to change our beliefs or only our behaviors. The Jews, in fact, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the scribes, they actually lived incredibly holy lives according to the law. 
They were very careful to keep every jot and every tittle of the law. That's, the, that's their phraseology. Every single jot, every single tittle they would keep. They would measure everything to make sure they were following exactly what God said to do in the way that God said to do it. And yet the problem was not their beliefs or their behaviors. The problem was on a heart level. That's how Jesus, the author of the law, could show up and they used the law against him to actually condemn him and kill him and rebel against him. And you see why all of a sudden that this was a personal passage for Paul. He was a trained Pharisee. As a trained Pharisee, he knew the law better than practically anybody alive at the time. And not only that, he says later on another place that he was not just a Pharisee. He says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was knocking it out of the park. As Pharisees go, I was at the top of my class. Nobody could surpass me in my understanding of the law. Also, nobody could exceed him in his fulfillment of the law. He says also someplace else that he says, I was blameless regarding the law. I was doing a great job at keeping every single part of it. But he found out that though the law was perfect, his heart wasn't. And that's the problem. The law is perfect, but Paul's heart wasn't. He found out, if you read in verse seven, which isn't really a part of our, our passage, but if you read in verse seven, he says that he found that he became covetous in his heart. So, so imagine this. He, he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Jew of the Jews. He's keeping all the law as carefully as he can, as well as he can. He is knocking at the park. He's very careful to do everything. And yet all of a sudden, and we don't know what it was, he looks over at his neighbor's house and he wants that house. It's what happens for us when we go to the beach and we're having a great time until we look behind us and we see that amazing house on the ocean, right? And all of a sudden, your time at the beach is ruined because you can't stop thinking about how awesome it must be for that person to have that house there. And I wish I could have that house here. And then if you let that keep on going, it becomes, how dare they have that house there? How dare God let them have that house? And you go home and you, all of a sudden the house that looked okay, you're like, what a dump this is. And it ruins your life. That's what happened to Paul. Keeping all the behavior, all the beliefs for the right, and yet all of a sudden he finds at his heart level there's sin that's at war there within him. And no matter what he can do, he can't conquer it. And so much so that it ended out with him, Paul, or Saul as he known at the time, endorsing the imprisonment and murder of Jesus' followers. We're told that he held the the coats of those who stoned Stephen, the first martyr. So in light of that, let's listen to this part of the passage again, verses four and five of chapter seven. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Verse five, pay attention to this. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Look down to verse 21 of chapter seven. So I find it to be a law 
that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being. But I see in my members or in my, my body and the, the rest of who I am, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, Paul found out what we see is that the law of God is good. It's good because, first of all, it reflects the nature and character of God. The law shows us who God is like, what he is like. It shows us his nature and his character. If you read not just the Ten Commandments, but the, the rest of the law that's contained in what we call the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, when we read the law, you, it, goes, it's in, it goes incredible detail of how, like, a sense of fairness, a sense of honesty, also a sense that we should, be, we should care about our neighbors. We should love God. We should care for our neighbors. Included in the law, it says that if you were a farmer, you wouldn't glean around the edges. Whenever you go to, to, to reap your harvest, you wouldn't glean around the edges of your field so that the sojourner or the pilgrim or the fugitive or the, uh, the undocumented alien in your midst can come and gather fruit from the edges themselves. He cared about justice. The law shows us the nature and the character of God. It, it, it is good in that it shows us the nature and character of God and it's good in that it results for those of us who, who follow it, for those who do follow it, it results in life for those that obey. That's what God said. God said, if you obey my law, you will get life. If you follow after me, if you keep my commandments, you will get life. If you don't, there will be a cursing. But the problem is that Paul is saying here is that the law, though it is good, it shows us God and it results in life for those who follow it. Nobody can follow it because here's the problem. The law can't change us. It has no power within it to change us. It only has the power to show us the nature and character of God and to, and to call us to the living a holy life in that follows his nature and his character, but it doesn't have in itself any power to change us. Did you notice that in verse five? For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, hear what happens? Aroused by the law, we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Why? Is the law bad? No. But when we hear the law, our heart, which is sinful in itself, reacts against it. And all of a sudden, it's sort of like, sort of like when I tell my kid, don't touch that. What are they going to do? They touch that. It's a lot like this. So uh, whenever I was a kid, we were, I was at my, my great grandma's house and uh, she had this uh, roll of carpet underneath her carport. And uh, the family was coming, uh, she was watching me, the family was coming the next day and they were gonna take that roll of carpet and install it in her dining room. So we're having a family reunion, she's making food, or, you know, we're having a good time and we're all sitting outside back behind her house and they, and they go, they're gonna, they're gonna put this carpet down in, her, live, in her, her dining room and they take the carpet and they unroll it in the backyard and what had happened was bees had built a nest, a, a hive inside the carpet roll. So as soon as they unroll the carpet, all of a sudden we're under an attack by this swarm of bees. And I was little 
But I remember very clearly my grandmother who was standing beside me, she grabbed my hand and she said, because I felt something like got caught in my hair. And she said, don't touch your head. Do you know what I did? I did exactly that and the bee stung my hands because that is the way that we're built in. That's what is going on inside our hearts is that the law comes to us and says, don't do this. And we immediately feel an impulse to want to do the opposite. I was a youth pastor uh, years ago and we made a mission trip to, to England and we we're uh, doing a, you know, one of the kind of pleasure days during that trip. And we're, that's one of those embarrassing things. We're, we're, we're touring this, this castle and it was really cool. And we we're on this like trolley ride around the castle. And we, we go to this like sort of this tunnel thing. And, and I'm at the very last cart in this long kind of trolley thing. And the guy who's telling us about the, the castle and gives the history, he says, don't stick your hand out while we go through this tunnel because the walls are very sharp. I'm one of the leaders in this youth group. You know what I did? Boop. Touched the wall. You know what he did? He stopped the trolley, walked all the way down the whole line of cars, came up to me in front of my youth and said, did I say not to touch the wall? I said, yes, sir. He said, don't touch the wall. And then walked all the way back and got back in the car ride and I was done. I was, I was like, let's, let's go home, let's get back to America. Well, that's what happens. The law is right and it's good in itself, but it has in itself, it has no power to change us. And here's what it should show us is that we have no power to change ourselves. That's what it should show us. Do you hear that in the second passage that we read? So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I see its goodness, but I also feel another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The law is good, but it doesn't have any power to change us. And I have no power to change myself because the problem is my heart. The problem is your heart. The problem is our heart. That's why when they came to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, give us a summary of the law. Tell us what is the most important commandment in the law. Matthew 22, in verse 37, Jesus said to that man who asked him that question, he said this, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. And you notice where Jesus went? He didn't say, hey, have you done all the right things? Does your life look like you've kept all the law? He says, here's what you got to do. Here's the heart of the law. Do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your mind and your soul? That's what drove Martin Luther incredibly crazy while he was a monk. He was so careful in the type of life that he lived. He he wore out his superiors because as a Catholic monk, he would go to confession and he was confessing the tiniest little problems 
tiniest little things, little thoughts he had had, little things that he had done. And they got tired of him actually confessing the tiny things that he was confessing. But he knew because he knew the holiness of God and the goodness of the law. He knew he kept seeing his heart and soul. And he, and he got angry, he tells us, with God because he said, I got angry with him because I could not love him. I could not love him with all of my heart. Much less even getting to the point, not just where I love my neighbor, like I don't hate my neighbor and I do some good things for them, but I love them the same way that I love myself. That's a heart problem. And the law can't change it. The law locks us in because it raises our awareness of sin. If you apply the law of God to your heart, it will cause you to see your sin. You hear that in, Paul, in what Paul's saying here? For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, as he studied the law, as he looked at the law of God, it aroused within him a fruit bearing fruit for death. Not only does the law raise our awareness of sin, but the law raises itself our sinful inclinations. That's what I was just talking about. Since the problem is your heart, when we see the law, our rebellious, sinful heart rebels as it is commanded. Even when it recognizes it's sinful. How many of you guys have walked out of church on a day and said, man, God, I'm going to be all about you today. And yet this other part of your mind is also saying, whenever I get out of here, I'm going to do X. And you know, it's sinful. You know it is, and yet you're, you're holding on to that in your soul, in your mind. Because the law comes, and it shows us, it raises our awareness of sin, but it also stirs our sinful inclinations itself. It pokes at the bear inside each of our souls, each of our hearts. It locks us in, and it's supposed to. The purpose of the law is to show us, to show you your sinful heart and to show you your inability to change. That's what the law should do for all of us. It should show our sinful hearts and our inability to change. But here's the danger. Because most of you who are listening here online or here in person, most of you who are listening, most of you who are watching, you are from some sort of church background. You've been around Christianity, whether it's a, you know, a, some amount of time, even if you're you haven't been a Christian a long time. I've been, you've been around church a while. And the, the danger is that we can get, it, the danger isn't that we can get too serious about God's law. The dangerous is that we don't get serious enough about our hearts. The danger is when we say, hey, my life is good enough, I'm living well enough, and I don't let the law come down and weigh upon my soul enough that I, that I let it raise my awareness of sin to the point that I actually see it stoking my own inclinations to sin and it causes me to despair. That should be the role of the law for us. You see, your heart will dupe you. Here's what it will do. The your heart will point out all the things that you are doing well. It'll be your pet peeves, your pet projects, those things that are, matter a lot to you, those three or four or five things that are like the big deal for you. And your heart will show you and tell you, hey, look how good a job you're doing at these things. And then just to make yourself even feel better, it'll look, you'll look around you and your heart will say, look at how those people, whoever those people are, it may be your wife or your husband or your kids. 
because they're driving you crazy. It might be your neighbors or it might be Democrats or Republicans or the not Christians or the people who live over there who look like this or have that skin tone or that skin tone. Your heart will dupe you and it'll tell you, look how good a job you're doing at these things, but look how poor a job they are doing at those things. But it will ignore the acid test, which is what we've already covered Do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might? Not do you love your God? Because most of you in the here can say that to some extent. I love the Lord my God. The question is, do you love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your might? And if you say, absolutely, then let's hit the second acid test. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Now, who did Jesus say our neighbor is? He tells us in the the story, the parable of the great Samaritan, he says, our neighbor is anyone that we see around us in need. Not the people who just happen to be on your street, though do you love them? But the people around you who have a need, do you love them as yourself? And if not, then revert it back to question number one, because you may have answered that question incorrectly. You may have been duped by your own heart. The law locks us in, but the law also then leads us to the only place that we can find help. Paul's cry in verses 21 through 24 is the continual cry of a people who are near the heart of God. Hear it. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, this place of despair that Paul is crying out in, this place of despair is a good place to be. Because it means that finally you're not playing games anymore. It means you're not pretending anymore. You're not letting the law uh, work in your soul and you twist it so it dupes your, you dupe yourself and think that you're doing a good job when you see the whole law of God at the heart level. And it brings you to a place of despair where you see God, you cry out like Paul at the end, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I feel this weight of this calling upon my life coming from God, your righteous requirements of your law that come to bear upon my soul. And I feel it pressing against me and I can't get there. No matter what I try to do outwardly, my beliefs and my behaviors, it can't change my heart attitudes and my heart thoughts. And I cry out, God, I need to be released. I need to be released from the condemnation of the law. The law comes and condemns me. If I don't love the Lord your God, my God with all of my heart, soul, and mind, if I don't love my neighbor as myself, 
no matter how many other things I am doing well, it's not enough. It doesn't please God. It is not okay. It condemns me. And it causes me to cry out to be released from that condemnation. And it causes me to, to need to be released from that sinful heart that keeps me from fulfilling the law. That keeps me from even desiring to fulfill God's law. And now here is where we get to, this is the place that anyone has to get to in order to become a Christian. You see the nature and character of God as reflected in his law as holy and good. You see what God has called you towards, that I'm, he has called me to live a holy life before him that loves him with all of my heart and soul and my neighbor as myself. And then I see my own actions, my own thoughts, my own attitudes, my heart. And I know that the only way to break away from the demands of the law is death. The only way I can break away is to die. And that leads me to the only place that I can look for help. And that is from Jesus, the only holy one, the giver of the law himself. Notice what he says in verse six. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written law. We see at that moment when we're brought to our despair, we see that Christ died so that I could live. We see that Christ died the death to sin and the law for me, that his death can be my death. And I reach out and accept that and pull that in by faith. And I, my soul cries out to him as verse 25, thanks be to God who will deliver me. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the question is, where are you looking today? Where are you looking today? You may be you may be like Paul and say, hey, I've been a Christian of the Christians. I've been around church. I know the deal. I believe the right things. My behaviors look really good. I'm very careful about the way I live my life. And yet you feel calling out within your soul this cry that says, yet I do not love the Lord my God. And I have never actually accepted his death to be my death and his life than to be my life. I call you today to call out to Christ and to reach out to him in your heart, in your soul, in faith and accept his death and his resurrection as yours. But then that's not only the way that we become a Christian, it should be our continual mindset as Christians. We should continually see the holiness of God. We should continually see his righteous law. And even though we have a new nature in our soul, that we should feel that divided soul, that sin that's still within us, warring. We should see it warring within ourselves and we should continually cry out to God, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Thanks be to God through Christ. 
And that is the path to growth. As we cry out to God through Jesus, we surrender. And what Paul tells us in this passage is we find the life of the Spirit, the life of God now at work within us for him to live his life through us by faith and not us living his, the right life on our own because we can't. We'll end with this. If you're a Christian and you don't feel like Paul feels in this passage, crying out, who will deliver me, O wretched that, that man that I am, and then exclaiming, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, there's a, one of two things happening. One, either, either you aren't seeing and feeling the weight of your sin under the law, and you're accepting, hey, it's good enough, it's okay, and you're letting your heart dupe you, or you aren't seeing Jesus and his sufficiency and sacrifice for you. When you feel that weight, a wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And then you see Christ, it creates a joy and a thankfulness and a gratefulness and a, a, a sense of the, his life working within you that brings you deliverance and changes your life so that we as Christians live a grateful, joy-filled, different kind of life so the world around us looks in and sees a city on a hill and a lamp on the table that's lighting in the middle of darkness. Let's not accept something lesser, but let's not get caught in self-pity and thinking I'm just sinful instead of looking to Christ and letting his spirit bring life and refreshment to our souls. And that's what we're going to do right now as I pray. Uh, Dale's going to come forward and lead us in communion as the band then leads us in worship. We're going to see the feast that God has laid out on the table for us in Christ. And we're going to savor that together. Father, I thank you that you are perfect and holy and we are not. But yet in Christ, you give us a salvation and a deliverance that promises to change us from the inside out. And though we will always war with the sin in our, in our lives, in our minds, God, that one day that you're taking us to a place where we'll be delivered And we'll sing your praise. God, help us in the meantime to live the lives that you called us to live that reflect you. In the name of Christ, we pray.